Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 493, for October 29th, 2022. Welcome back. And this is also seven more before episode 500. Right, counting down. Uh, today mm-hmm. we talk Sophia Lebrun. Uh, she is a Democratic uh, candidate for the 3rd Congressional District, centered in Lafayette in southwest Louisiana. She was born and raised in Terrebonne Parish, is a member of the United Homa Nation, um, daughter of three generations of working class service industry workers. Uh, she worked her way up to become uh, the first in her family to go to college and become a, a school teacher and um, has taught immersion French uh, at times. So uh, we're looking forward to talking to her. We had a really good talk. Um, We'll get to that in a minute. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history on October 29, 1948, uh, Bryant Gumbel, formerly of the Today Show on NBC, was born. And I don't guess, did he ever live in Louisiana? Do you know he and his I, brother? Well, that's what I was just wondering. Um, Bryant Gumbel... How did he wind up in? <laughs> it it has to be me. Oh no, he's from New Orleans. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know whether they ever lived here. I'm, I, no, I'm not sure that he may have, but he may have lived. He may have grown up out west or something. I don't know. I, it says uh, born in New Orleans, son of Rhea Alice, a city clerk, and Richard Dunbar Gumble, a judge, um, German Jewish ancestry. He attended and graduated from the LaSalle Institute in Chicago. There you go. So at some point they moved from New Orleans to Chicago, which is one of the common uh, directions out of the south. They either tended to go north or west and wind up right. El- if you're from New Orleans. So anyway. One, one of them uh, rested on, as I found out, it, it sort of relied on whether they were train lines uh, to those Right, states. yeah, yeah. And so they hopped the train. Not everybody did, but quite a lot of them hopped the train. Oh, then then when um, roads came along that paralleled the train tracks, and so you go north, south, or east, west, you don't have that many diagonal roads, although Louisiana Highway 1 is one. All right, so happy birthday, Brian. Now for this week in New Orleans history, Governor David Conner, Dave Train Sr., died at East Jefferson Hospital in Metairie on October 29th. 2009. He the first Republican governor of Louisiana since Reconstruction, the first Republican in modern times to have served in the U.S. House of Representatives representing Louisiana. Remember, he was that thing we have even forgotten there was that sort of animal at one time because they're so very extinct. Now the good government Republican, um, you know, he wasn't one of these uh, flame-throwing idiots that wants to destroy everything. Well, you know, um, Buddy Romer became one of those. He was a very conservative uh-huh. Democrat. But, yeah, he became kind of a good government Republican. And I guess they probably were the last two in Louisiana, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Uh, maybe I mean, um, Foster. I mean. 
Faulkner was better than what followed. But, I mean, uh, at least he wasn't corrupt, you know, to his credit. No, he because, supported education. Uh, he did not support health care, though. So, Anyway, now for this week in Louisiana. Yeah, let me bring my screen up. It disappeared. So this week in Louisiana, Halloween in New Orleans will be celebrated, second only to Mardi Gras for its dazzling display of fun and finery. Halloween in New Orleans draws thousands of uh, thousands of uh, thousands of people to the quarter for devilish fun with vampires, zombies, ghosts, goblins, and everything else who parade up and down Frenchman Street, displaying the city's legendary wit and creativity in their carefully crafted costumes. All Hallows' Eve in New Orleans is an experience to remember for both the living and the undead. Ooh. Start your Halloween adventure with one of the many haunted tours to the French Quarter or some other spooky part of the city. And, of course, there are the world-famous cemeteries where the dearly departed are buried in tombs above the ground. Hundreds of stories abound in which the ghosts of these cities of the dead make their presence known. While prowling around the French Quarter, there are a number of voodoo shops to learn a little more about the history behind these centuries-old practices. The spirit of Marie Laveau, the high priestess of 19th century New Orleans, can still be felt in the vibes that surround you in some of these shops. You might even learn a few spells and mystical incantations. Many of the shops have special Halloween events. Also, voodoo music and arts experience takes place in, uh, every October. Head to City Park to enjoy food drinks, carnival rides, and a stellar lineup. The crowd will be in costume, and the Halloween spirit will be evident. Do we have a website for that? Yeah, there'll be a link. Have you ever been down there during that time? Uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, Kern, I went out on Halloween and took a bunch of pictures in the French Quarter. Um, you know, people all dressed up. Um, all right, so... Uh, yeah, if you can get there, I think I'll be back this Halloween. So uh, that's the plan anyway. Um, now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, uh, listen to Dr. Quinn G. plays Pennies from Heaven.
LeBron. Welcome, Tia. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Hi. Hi. You are currently running for 
United States Congress from the 3rd District of Louisiana. Is that right? That is right. And your opponent is one of Clay Higgins. <laughs> that is also right. <laughs> that is the biggest clown we've sent to the legislature. It's just an embarrassment. So um, we want to get... Um, you know, you to talk about your views on the different issues, but first, why don't you tell our listeners and the voters a little bit about yourself, where you're from and where you grew up, went to school, that kind of stuff. Well, I am originally from Houma, Louisiana. I was the oldest daughter of a single mother, and so oldest children in a single-parent home generally grow up a little quickly. I started helping with my younger siblings at about 10, started helping to pay bills at 15, and then became a young single mother myself at 18, but still managed to put myself through college at LSU. I was actually the first person in my direct line to graduate high school, and so going to college was a huge thing for my family. They were all very proud. Um, I moved to Lake Charles after graduating LSU to teach French. I taught at Lake Charles Boston High School, Sulphur Ninth Grade in Henry Heights, and after 12 wonderful years, I got a job as an administrator in Lafayette Parish, and that's where I live now in Lafayette. I led the immersion programs with a team of about 100 teachers from all over the world, teaching in French, Spanish, and Chinese. Oh, and I'm a part of the Homa tribe. I didn't miss cool. that. <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, my family is all the Dardars and Bill out in Terrebonne Parish. <laughs> right. So you've been down the bayou. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I remember going on a shrimp boat with my aunts and uncles and my father whenever I was little. Uh, we would go trawling on occasion fish out behind my mom's parents' house because um, they lived on the bayou side. Did you catch crawfish? <laughs> oh, well, I eat crawfish, but I never ah, did fish ah, them. Um, and I am actually the boil master at my house. So So you never put out set nets like I did as a kid growing up in Baton Rouge. We'd go out and... My aunt, uh, my aunt's family was German Cajun out uh, west of Port Allen, and we would go out there on their property, or out kind of south of their property, and we'd go put out set nets. And I felt no, like we only mud. did that for crabs here and there. Okay. So. <laughs> Falling in the mud is not fun, believe, believe me, especially when you're about 11 or 12 years old. Oh, gosh, no. And that's no fun either when you're in a blackberry bush that season going to collect them with big five-gallon buckets so that we can go make blackberry dumplings at home. So, <laughs> My sister loves the sticker bushes. You know, she, she'll go out and let stuff all day long. Um, so just before we move into politics, how is French doing in Louisiana right now? Like, are we gaining ground with people speaking it a little more? Is it losing ground? Uh, what, what's your assessment? Uh, well, as... A recent administrator of a program, one of the biggest in Louisiana, I can tell you that from the perspective of a school district, it's growing. There are about 2,000 kids participating in immersion in Lafayette Parish, 
And I was able to hire past students of immersion as teachers into the program while I was there. So that's always exciting that, you know, the program is starting to do what it intended to do 30 years ago when it first started, you know, roughly 30 years anyway. So, um, yeah, it's it's been bearing fruits. We have a lot of teachers that were past immersion students. We yeah. have a lot of opportunities for local legal immigrants who have come here with education, you know, background who are able to teach in Spanish immersion programs or right. Chinese immersion programs when their English isn't so strong yet, but they don't need it to do their job. So it's it's really been a wonderful thing to be a part of. Where am I? Which, which dialects of, of French are they teaching? Do you know when they make their programs? All of them. <laughs> um, we have teachers who, you know, I think Mandy Miguez is originally from Erath, and she speaks Louisiana French. She's teaching in a middle school right now for our immersion program. We have other teachers that speak their version from Abbeville or St. Landry Parish in some little town where they came to us with their Louisiana French. We have teachers from Congo, Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, Canada, Belgium, France, all over the place. Great. Well, our project, the Louisiana Anthology, um, started out just as a website for Louisiana literature, and so we have some of the original French language stuff. Uh, but it's slow going for us because we rarely have a student in our volunteer group who's really comfortable with French, so that slows us down. But, you know, we're coming along. Um, so... Do the business at hand, how did you get interested in politics? Oh, gosh. I think being a teacher in a niche area like I was, you know, you kind of have to be involved in the politics of the school system right? Um, to promote your program, fight for resources. Right. Um, you know, you have parents to support what you want to do and speak on your behalf. So I've done a little of this before on a smaller scale. Now it's just on a bigger scale, and what brought me to this point of joining the election was really the Roe v. Wade decision. Right, right, right. Yeah, I have four daughters and three granddaughters, and for us, you know, this whole pregnancy and complications issue, it's very serious. Um, If a doctor can't make a call to save a woman's life without having to go through the governor's office or lawyers, that is going to endanger a lot, a lot of people. And the most dangerous state in the United States for a woman to get pregnant, even before this reversal of Roe, was already Louisiana. It's the most dangerous place to get pregnant in the country. Um, because we don't have a very good health care system for a lot of our poorer women. You know, We also have a heck of a lot of gun violence. And if you're in any sort of abusive relationship, very oftentimes I've got cop, cop friend, police, uh, you know, law enforcement friends, an old friend, in fact, who will tell you that, that those situations often escalate very quickly to some form of gun violence. So apart from it being medically unsafe, 
it's just physically unsafe to get pregnant in Louisiana, quite frankly. Yeah, I agree. Especially for women of color. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'm looking at statistics here from Pew Research, which is pretty respected, you know, polling outfit. It's not like Rasmussen or the, the quacks there. And they're saying that, that 61, this is as of June, so it's a few months old, but it says 61% of Americans say abortion should be legal. That's verging on a supermajority, which would be 66 and two-thirds percent, right? Yeah. So, so you think about that. That's not just a simple majority, 50 plus one. This is much, much higher. And that tracks along lines, too, with a lot of Republican and independent women, you know, who support, you know, a woman's right to literally to govern her own body. Right, and this takes away some of our personhood to not even be able to make decisions right. that can save our lives. By the way, have you seen the Bill Cassidy clip where somebody's asking him as a doctor and a senator why Louisiana has such a terrible outcomes for its, uh, you know, uh, its mothers, the the women who are carrying the babies? And he said, "Well, they have a very large black population, and they consider mostly the people that." are dying, so, so it's all right, you know. Oh, it's only yeah. the YouTube, right? Yeah, yeah he he has baptized and and thus made sacred uh, institutional and structural racism. That's what he's done. Yeah, oh. we aren't actually <laughs> killing them, but we're letting them die. So that's not the same. Oh. <laughs> I think it's very much the same. If you recognize yeah. the problem, there should be an an attempt to address it and come to a solution that's better for people, no matter what color they are. Well, I was picking up supper in New Orleans a while back, and it was in a, a vibrant, um, mostly African-American neighborhood, and well-to-do. This place had a line out the door, and uh, dinner for three was over $100. So, you know, this, these folks have some money to uh, spend. Um, and as I was driving out, I noticed there's this huge hospital that's been closed. And that was the story throughout, uh, you know, the gender years was one minority-serving um, medical institution after another closing. And it goes back to, uh, you know, big charity after the uh, Katrina. Uh, and that wasn't even the Republicans that shut it down. That was Blanco. So we have a really bad record of medical, you know, supplying medical care to our minority community, and, and now we're making it that much worse. Correct. I'm, I'm looking at the breakdown of those statistics uh, from the Pew Research poll, and this tracks with my mother, who just died back in July. She would have been 102 this month, actually. And uh, she said, and I quote, and this is an exact quote, she said, huh, and this is a year or so ago, you know, just as she, was, I guess, turned 101. She said, huh, I hope to tell you some man will tell me what to do with my body. <laughs> with Americans 60, let's see, with, yeah, with Americans 65 plus, which would have included my mother, 54% of them say that abortion should be legal. This is actually with the women, uh, but it says that it should be legal in most cases. And, of course, the men, you know, again, men shouldn't have any say in this, right? I mean, they, don't, I mean, they may have an opinion, but they should not have a say as in make, making legislation, setting policy, et cetera. Correct. But, yeah, she, my mom was pretty huffy about that. You know, I hope to tell you some man she tell, she would tell me what to do with my body. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking of, you know, how slippery a slope that is. Yeah. 
because once they take and and they're take they've taken this away and they think that they've got us right now. Yeah. So does that lead to them further saying how many rounds of chemo a cancer patient can have? Are we well, going to have to go through our politicians for that next? Sure, it does because they want us to squelch Social Security. That's part of it too. What Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are all on the chopping block if the Republicans win this fall. Um, and that's why it's so important to vote Clay Higgins out because he may be the dumbest guy in Congress. And I know that that's a real ambitious uh, goal. He seems to be getting there. Um, but, you know, they can tell him which way to vote and he'll do it. And it'll be against women and against health care and against old people every time. Well, anybody vulnerable, right? Right. Yeah. Any, any, any vulnerable population. It could be, I mean, I'm a member of the, and have been because I think our, our affiliate here in Louisiana is kind of on the on the slab right now, but the Poor People's Poor People's Campaign, and as Doctor William Barber, the the co-head of the thing, points out, you've got a large percentage in this country, the largest single group in this country, of poor whites, and they're suffering too. It's just that in terms of <clears throat> minority groups, those percentages in terms of the total of, the, of that population is larger. But in terms of total numbers, the population of poor whites in this country is, is huge and growing, by the way. And so we're cutting from everybody who's vulnerable, poor whites, Native Americans, African Americans. Uh, you know, there's a large number of Asian Americans in this country that are getting poor. And, in fact, I think it's one of the fastest growing uh, classes of poor people, uh, ethnic, you know, ethnic poor in this country. Wow. But that doesn't matter to the, that doesn't matter to the corporate capital at all. In fact, they want people poor, right? They, they want them poor. Yeah, that means they have their money. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And we can get you to work for Chippy. So uh, there's a saying in the uh, pro-choice movement that abortion is health care. So, um, you know, because if you can withhold that, you can withhold other health care, and, and the two are tied together. So why don't you talk a little bit about your stance toward, like, Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare for all, that kind of stuff. Well, I am a fan of all of those. <laughs> I think that a society that takes care of the most vulnerable populations to a healthy, minimal standard of care, you know, like they need to be able to be as productive as they can, that the whole society will benefit. I had Medicaid as a child. I was the child of a single mother. We grew up with food stamps and had Medicaid. And we were able to be healthy kids, even though my mom couldn't always pay the electric bill, you know. Um, we never went hungry, which is something I'm very thankful for. Mm -hmm. So we had to do without some things that are considered necessities here and there, like running water or <laughs> electricity. But at least we had food to eat, and we could go to the doctor if we were sick. And I think that that's the minimum that we need to give to families. I really believe that everyone should be earning a humane wage, yeah. that their family does not have to do without those essentials like heating, air conditioning, <laughs> and running water. I don't, I, I've been lucky that my hard work has led to my kids not having to live that same cycle. Right. You know, well, so I I want to be at that humane level of living. While we're on the subject, 
extent toward raising the minimum wage, like what would you like to see be the Louisiana minimum wage or the nationwide minimum wage? You know, I am for raising the minimum wage. I don't know what perfect number that could be, really. I, I feel like... We've had a lot of inflation since then, you know? Yeah, yeah, and waitresses are still making $2 an hour in Louisiana. Right. So they haven't moved up even since before the last time the minimum wage was raised, and that's a problem because we're relying on patrons of restaurants to pay their salary instead of their restaurant that they work for. Right. So that's a problem. You don't. Well, similarly, like Walmart, we're you know they are relying on the public to subsidize their employees who are getting public assistance of various kinds, right? Correct. Because they're working part-time gigs, and so they they are they are part of the exploited class, which is working men and women in this country, and even working uh, children. You know who are you know say seventeen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old who are themselves being exploited as cheap labor yeah. basically. Well, there's yeah. actually, you know, <clears throat> the union uh, supporters. There's a new move or kind of new move to eliminate the uh, kind of laws that Louisiana has, the uh, so-called uh, uh, freedom to work. You know, like uh, what is it they call those? Um, you know, like the laws that say you don't have to join the union when you go to work. Right to work. Yes, that's it. Sorry. I was, yeah. got crossed up with right to life, and I knew that wasn't it. So, yeah. Um, so do you have any, like in addition to minimum wage, do you have anything for labor um, improvements on, on their position? Yeah, I believe that labor labor unions were what brought, you know, our, all of our industrial age people who could who came up and one family salary could buy a home and a car and take yeah. care of a couple of kids. Right. Um and you know, we might be so far gone that, you know, we need to but I had to work. <laughs> Not only my teaching job while my husband was a welder, but I also had to waitress on the weekends so that we would be able to do any kind of entertainment things with the kids. Um, the two salaries we had weren't enough for us to do all those things with that a, a family should be able to enjoy with the fruits of their labor. So I have four unions. They like the No, um, and now, like you say, somebody with that same job doing that same stuff cannot. And you might have always wanted to teach anyway, but it wouldn't be nice if you had the choice, uh, or if he had the choice whether to be a welder, because you're a well-paid teacher. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice because you know all of the accomplishments that I had with my students. That we don't get bonuses for doing our job well. Mm-mm. You know, we get like a thank you, a recognition here and there, but that doesn't come with anything monetary unless we win the state's teacher of the year, you know, mm-hmm. against thousands and thousands of other people. Then right. I think they are. But <laughs> I mean, there's not much in the way of bonuses. 
according to how we do with our students. Well, and screw the bonus. Give us the raise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we are lucky, though, in teaching. I was just talking to my husband. At least it's transparent what we're making. You know, right. in some of those uh, white-collar workforce professions where they can't talk about what they're making and there is this huge gap between what and earning, that's not okay. At least I went into this with open eyes, and I know right. everybody on the same year is making the same as me. Right. So that is one thing that is a benefit to being an educator is that you know what you're going to make, you know what others are making. Oh, and this brings me to another issue, um, public education versus privatizing it through making uh, vouchers and um, uh, charter schools and all that. What's your, what's your opinion about, you know, supporting public schools versus the I know that we need to end them the way we did in New Orleans. Oh, I don't think that that's the route that we need to take. Um, I don't like the accountability for charter schools. Um, you know, some of them are doing good work, but some of them are not, and they get to hide behind the three years that they go without a score, and then maybe they restructure and, or change their name and their manager or their CEO, and they get three more years without a score with those same kids. Right. So that's those loopholes. <laughs> that's elementary school right there. You know, you've just yes. Yeah, you've just uh, yeah, you've just not graded this whole crop of kids based on their school's ability to provide them with basic services and get them to a basic level. So and I don't frankly, like that. <laughs> the statistics are tough to know that the average charter school is average. They're doing about as well as the public school in the same neighborhood. So, you know, Correct. it did not. And, I mean, this experiment has been going on since Katrina. The idea was that, Privatized education was going to fix the social ills of New Orleans. So has the crime rate gone to zero? <laughs> right. Well, and also are we fitting these kids for democracy? Because we're harping on yeah. too much fitting them for the workforce. And that's, I guess that's okay. But, I mean, really education should be fitting them for democracy and also trying to teach them along with families because it's a partnership, but teaching them how to be a decent human being and function in society. And are they doing that? And I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of, of whether, whether or not those charters are doing that, quite frankly. Yeah. They have a lot less restrictions than other schools may. Um, there are only certain guidelines that they have to follow according to the state and the parish where they're located, depending on the type. But I, I really feel like if we came up with a better system of gauging success with schools, I don't think that that should rely solely on uh, standardized exam. Sorry, that is given to third through eighth graders every year, taking weeks out of their instructional oh, time. Weeks messes right? up their momentum, quite frankly. Yes, yes, and it costs millions of dollars. What could they be doing with those millions of dollars 
to better utilize that instructional time and to make teachers less stressed. Um, They're graded 50% on the outcomes of that assessment that the state can change the cut scores on anytime they want. Yeah. And, um, like, once they, if we've, the parent of young, or kids growing up, you know that after those tests are given in, say, April, there's barely anything done the rest of the school year. It's like, okay, school's out, we're going to class, but there's no more homework, you know, not much in the way of tests. And everybody's worn out from the big tests, and they just want to relax before they go home for the summer. Yeah, it's not a good system at all. I think we are way too obsessed with standardized assessment. And there are countries in this world that show us up all the time who don't do that. Right. In Finland or someplace over in that part of the world that they, they don't do I think it's that Singapore that's number one right now in both math, reading, and science. Um. And they, they, Finland does do a lot more physical activities during the day. Right. For every 45 minutes of instruction, there's 15 minutes of physical activity. Yeah, which is great. our little ADHD, and the human body was not intended, especially the child's body, not intended to still at hours a day. Our kids Correct. They're meant to move. Yeah, they need to be active. Their activities need to be changing every so many minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's one of the strategies that I've recently used. I still coach um, teachers in immersion environments. And one of the teachers was brand new from another continent. And the strategies that he brought with them weren't working well. So I did a model of, you know, changing activities at least every 10 minutes and between every second or third activity, you sing a song or do a dance or get them moving so that they can get back into whatever you're doing. And, you know, it's kindergarten. You have to keep them moving and keep them changing activities to keep them interested. Yeah, you have to engage. So, I had a rough time. Bruce knows this and some of the listeners do, but I had a rough, rough time from the first of really to the fourth grade and teachers pitching me out of class anywhere from two to four times a week. And I know from, you know, from that experience, I missed some of the lessons. I mean, I can just, you know, prove that. And I'm sure it, it really stunted my intellectual growth, uh, you know, at that time and really kind of left me hamstrung uh, for a lot of the time. And finally got a teacher in fourth grade, a, well, a string of them, fourth through the sixth grade, that really worked with me. But, I mean, I struggled. Those first three years was, was holy hell. And that one teacher that started the, you know, my turnaround in fourth grade, I talked with a cousin later on. We've got several teachers in my family, and I wound up later myself being a college instructor. But I was talking with this cousin of mine, and she said, you probably <clears throat> probably turned around at the right age. She said, because boys, if they don't turn around around third, fourth, fifth, maybe fifth grade, they're probably not going to. Yeah. And I was in that group that did by some, you know, mysterious quirk or whatever, thanks to those three teachers and my parents, I turned around, but a lot of the kids don't, and we're letting them fall through the cracks. And I would, I would argue that a lot of that is a direct result of this, this testing regimen that we're obsessed with, which doesn't really help anybody, 
and but it makes those you know those testing companies quite wealthy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it also meets these these silly benchmarks because of this neoliberal model that we've got in mind that everything can be solved with you know a new test or a new this that and the other, which is basically a gimmick. When we need to be doing what you and people have been doing on the ground for years, just get down to nuts and bolts teaching. Mm-hmm. Ditch a lot of those tests. Yeah, and I was really lucky to be in second grade. Um, I didn't want to be in a testing grade because we all, as teachers, hear the horror stories from our colleagues about how stressful it is. Kids crying in class, they get so stressed. They go um, off, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not good for anybody to have this much pressure over something that doesn't mean anything. Because is anybody ever going to ask for your fourth grade LEAP scores when you go to apply for a job? That's buried in the past, yeah. (laughs) No, what it does is it stigmatizes those children. And the teachers. Yeah. And the the poorer schools. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my my grade record is is just crammed full to the brim of, of, of all kinds. And I am, as Bruce mentioned, I am an ADHD, you know, person. I stammer quite a lot, particularly if I get upset, excited, stressed, whatever. I really stammer badly then. And my record is full of, of various kinds of conduct, you know, demerits. Everything from, you know, talks too much in class and wanders the class, uh, distracts the other students, uh, causes, himself, causes himself distractions, et cetera. Yeah. So rough time. <laughs> so I, I, a related educational issue. In order to teach, young people need to go to college. And these days, after all the cuts of uh, governmental sports public education, the tuition has skyrocketed, and most people don't have that kind of cash lying around, and so they leave college with a big pile of student debt. Uh, and it's hard to choose those poor school districts, even if it's the one back home that you really want to teach at, uh, because the payment won't, you know, your pay doesn't uh, help you too much uh, pay off your student debt. So what's your, I don't made a little start at $10,000, but what is your uh, stance on forgiving, uh, you know, more student debt in the future? I would be for it as long as it's responsibly done, which I would hope they have a great plan for, because I think that that's going to help. I mean, it's the investments that we're missing in higher education, in my view, from when I and others attended college, which is why we have this debt. Um, And so as a mother who was working as a teacher and had a second job, I graduated with, from LSU with more debt than I would earn in a salary annually. Right. And so sometimes I couldn't even afford the student loan payments. Right. And so to put those off, <laughs> you have to take another class. Those are English treadmill people. You know, like your mortgage is time. When you sign on, it's either a... 15-year, 20-year, 30-year, and you know when you're going to be out of debt. This stuff, if you're paying the minimum, it's like a credit card. You never get out of debt, and that's what they want. Right. Well, you become, I mean, in effect, you become an indentured servant 
who's yeah. the holder of the debt. And, you know, Marco Rubio wanted to make it even worse with that. Y'all remember that quack plan he floated here, you know, few, just a few years ago where he wanted people to go to work for, was it for that company or for somebody in, in order to pay down the debt? Well, that's even worsening the, the, the current problem because, again, it, it is a form of indentured servitude. Yeah, so I had to take another class here and there to pause my payments. Right. Um, I used, um, I forget what they're called, but like to take a break in payment because we were suffering from financial hardship. Right. Um, it's like so an abatement, an abatement or something or other, or whatever. They, is it something like that, or it's something like that. Where like, okay, like we'll give you three months with no payments, and then we'll revisit how much you're paying every month. And sometimes those would help, um, but that disqualified me from the 10-year right. years worth of payments. Yeah. So, like, the federal public, public service loan forgiveness program doesn't work if you have paused payments because of financial hardship. It starts over when you start paying again. Right. Let me lobby you uh, for about the beauty of the big dump program because everybody wants a smart program. And this, uh, you know, getting, you know, teaching in a uh, poor area and getting out, making your payments for 10 years and filling out all the forms correctly. Uh, that's one of the smart programs. Uh, a big dump program, let's just give everybody the first uh, $100,000. And you don't even need to apply for it because the paperwork is a gatekeeper that a lot of people can't, you know, surmount all the paperwork. And so they never get out of it. Um, so anyway, you know, I have to decide today, but just, you know, put a bug in your ear if you didn't make it to Congress that big, dumb programs are very popular. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's best, but they're best yeah. in those things. And this goes back, uh, Tia, to your own, well, security. Your, own you back, know. your own background of being a member of the Homa tribe. I mean, let's face it, people who are from communities of color, this would be people who are native, who are African-American, who are Asian, who are Latino, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They suffer disproportionately uh, in terms of the student debt programs or the student loan programs, I should say. You know, they suffer. Yeah. Typically, those families that are from those particular communities don't have the equity that the families who are Anglos have. Quite frankly, they don't have it. Right. Uh, and so consequently, when they, when those kids, or when the students, I should say, when they, when they get out, when they graduate, and even if they've only gone a couple of years, if they've still accrued debt, that means they've got to pay it back, and that means they're going to suffer disproportionately again, uh, in, in comparison to you know the Caucasian family who typically, not always, but typically, you know, in the main and in, in general, has more equity and has more, quite frankly, more wealth. And this is yeah. a fact uh, that that the that the right will not reckon with in this country. And in fact, again, as Bruce says, I mean, they want to make the rich richer. That's what it comes down to. They want to make the rich richer. Yeah, and they've been successfully doing that. Oh, and absolutely. We definitely need a middle class. We need yeah. we need people to be able to afford basics without going into extreme amounts of debt. And, you know, one of the things that also harms student debt owners is that there is no allowance for bankruptcy. Right, for right, student, right. For student debt. Yeah, it's the only kind of debt you can't really do bankruptcy. No bankruptcy. Correct. 
So let's talk a little bit about what was the, oh another thing with the use um, legalizing marijuana. Uh, what's your stance on that and other drugs and the war on drugs and locking people up for large portions of their lives again, mostly minorities. Um, yes, well-heeled college kid who's selling weed out of his dorm room. Um, <laughs> and this. I would love to see us legalize medical and recreational marijuana use. Um, <laughs> if it's for for people to buy, if it's regulated by the FDA like other things. Um, it, and we get tax money in return, and we decriminalize something silly that is less harmful than alcohol. So I, I would love to see a lot of things decriminalized that hurt no one else or that are just a symptom of being poor, <laughs> you know? Right. Why do we criminalize being poor and fine it to death when they we already know they have nothing? So I would, even some psychedelics have proven to be more effective at treating PTSD in our veterans than uh, chemical medications. Right. And if it's more natural and it's more effective, why would we not look at decriminalizing that substance to make it available for the people who at need, or in need at that time, you know? Well, Frankly, the countries that do best with the drug problems deal with it from a public health perspective. So their focus isn't on sending people to jail. It's uh, getting them in rehab, uh, getting them a, you know, after they get out, make sure they have a place to live and a job. And, um, you know, that, they, have a, they have a supportive community. I mean, you know, a lot of it depends on whether or not the community kind of rallies around them to help them. Yeah, and I think it's that our community doesn't know enough about it to rally. I think that it's not well known (laughs) that these substances can be more effective for people, reduce our health care costs overall if we turn to that instead, and just provide better care for our heroes. And, you know, our veterans are so important. Right. You know, um, to follow up on what Bruce just said, the nation of Portugal has seen some real success. You know, they have they have decriminalized a lot of the drugs. They've, you know, uh, taken them off their list of things for which, you know, you're going to be arrested and, and be prosecuted and so forth. And they've seen some real success in Portugal because of that. And it also, quite frankly, this ought to get a lot of our so-called libertarian friends on board with this, but it is a real savings of, of the public dollar. Right, because you don't yeah. have to devote all that money, and that's it's a huge billions dollar, you know, type process and so forth to 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 prosecute people, uh, and also when yeah. you've been convicted, you got to incarcerate them. Mm-hmm. So well, this this removes you know put that, this puts that money right back into the public coffers when you you know when you're not prosecuting all these folks that are supposed to you know offenders or whatever. And there's right. a inverse relationship <clears throat> between spending on police and jails versus spending on education. So the more you spend on jails, the less you spend on education. And the more you spend on education, the less you spend on jails. 
it's a smart investment in our future to fix up our schools uh, rather than, you know, start building, you know, look around your fourth grade and start building um, sales to house them once they graduate or don't graduate. Yeah, that we we do need less incarceration period and a better investment in our education so that we can avoid criminalization of our youth. And I also would love to see the end of privatized prisons that are making money off of our incarcerated people. <sighs> so, um, <laughs> no, right. Yeah. It's it's frustrating the amount of issues that we have that really need to be addressed that are just symptoms of our systematic um, oppression of certain peoples. So yeah, and, and that's what we want. We've got um, black people or uh, illegals. You know, like look at little in your family tree. When did your folks get here? You know, um, but it's scapegoating. We always want to scapegoat. Yeah, and just because it's different and you might not understand it, does it shouldn't make it illegal. Um, so complaining about you know strange man in the park, you know those those kinds of calls and people getting nervous and wanting more police on the streets. I mean, police policing needs to be adjusted as well. They need better training to interact in their community. Well, they need, more community effort to police. I think a mental health professional traveling on a ride where somebody who is schizophrenic hasn't been on their medicine for a few days right, would be a right. much better solution to, you know, getting that resolved rather than just handcuffing someone for their mental illness. You know, there's a there's right. an infamous case like that, and this is indicative of a lot of them, of a guy who was, was, I think, Anglo, and I'll follow this up with a guy who's African-American, but this guy was Anglo. He was, I think, a schizophrenic out in Albuquerque, maybe, but it was in one of the larger cities in New Mexico, either Albuquerque or Santa Fe. And I think it's Albuquerque that has a really bad, bad, bad record for that kind of thing about, you know, shooting, gunning down people that have mental illness of various kinds. And this guy yeah. had a knife or two, and I think he, he, he surrendered the thing. I mean, he was... He climbed up some rocky outcropping or something. Anyway, he turned around. He's telling them, you know, he's he he knew he was having an episode, <clears throat> and he told the the law enforcement officers, you know, that he was surrendering. And he, I think he threw the knives down. They still shot the man dead. Yeah. And then another case of uh, you know here more recently that was probably eight or ten years ago. But there's another case more recently of a of a black guy who was out, I think, in the street and maybe playing with some toys or something because he he was another. I think maybe another schizophrenic, but anyway, he was out in the street, I think sitting down, and he was having an episode, and I, I don't know all the particulars, but it wound up, they shot him dead too. You know, and when there should have been a social worker or somebody on site to really to de-escalate the cops. Yeah. Only school is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. And uh, we don't need to be, when people talk about defunding the police, usually they mean move some of that money to other social services and call them when the problems come up because the police, they're never going to be a social worker. They're always going to be, uh, you know, up front with the gun and uh, maybe uh, 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 
oh, what's the tasers, you know, gas. Uh, you know, that's just their thing. And we're expecting the uh, hammer to be a, become a screwdriver, and it's not going to. It's, it, we've tried for years to do this, and it never worked. So let's just go for smaller uh, police forces that deal with actual violent situations. And, you know, like a few weeks ago, I got this uh, ticket in the mail. I had uh, turned right on red and hadn't waited long enough. And it was all handled by a camera. There was no no police involved whatsoever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, we really... We really could use some restructuring of funding. And maybe that's a term we should now coin instead of defund the police. We just need to restructure public funding so that we're serving our communities to the best of our ability and not just policing and criminalizing people. Well, and I know local isn't your thing. You'll be up in Congress. But Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate in the country. And uh, we could stand to spend a little less on jails and a little more on schools, or maybe a lot less and a lot more. We don't have to be the worst at everything. Yeah, well, I think that with the federal-level position, we're able to provide tax incentives to for different funding issues that are important. But my voice will also be big enough that I can pressure local legislators to change some of their actions, especially in my district. Right. You know, if, if I'm bringing attention to the things unfair, my voice is bigger, and I'll have more influence on helping us get to a place of, you know, more collaboration, more humanity in our leadership, and just a respect for all people. All people are good. Yeah, and right now that microphone you know? play Higgins. And um, <laughs> why don't you talk just a minute about Clay and uh, the job he's doing? Because it's not just that they're voting for you, but against him. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, Mr. Nay. I mean... He definitely has voted no on anything that would have been good for us in in his years in office, which is unfortunate. Including infrastructure, roads, bridges. Yes, yes which he is touting as a huge accomplishment now that it passed in spite of him and not because of his support. He's, he's lying like like his you know, like his uh, allies do in the same party. Uh, they're lying about their so-called accomplishments, right? Yeah, I see the tagline, stolen valor on a lot of those posts. What? And, um, you know, Louisiana has always been an energy state, and there is going to be a move. At some point, it'll have to move from the uh, dried-up oil and gas wells to Green New Deal, and having a guy like Clay in office when you're negotiating with stuff means that none of those bucks will be coming here um, to set up a, a green energy. We need to have windmills out in the Gulf of Mexico um, the way we do oil derricks. Yes. And, you know, one of the other people on the ticket has been saying that'll kill the shrimping industry to scare people. But 
if we plan it right, it won't affect anything to any kind of negative extent. We have a lot of time to make this a reality and diversify our energy and stay the energy hub of the U.S. And just by expanding our horizon. And you want to see the uh, seafood industry take a major hit. Have a big oil derrick bring a leak. (laughs) Yeah. That's definitely, you know, the... Deepwater Horizon, anyone? <laughs> yes, exactly. You want all with it. Well, and we also need to be pushing solar. You know, despite what people like, yeah. uh, like the great expert Marjorie Taylor Greene says. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, solar is a real. It's not even just an alternative uh, source of fuel or power anymore. I mean, it's viable now. It is viable as a source of of energy. And what are we doing? We're not. You know, in some states, they even are penalizing people for going solar. But oh, we need to wow. be pushing that in Louisiana because because of our location. I mean, think about all the days we have in this state that are sunny days, and that those cells when they're put out there on a piece of property and or a piece of geography, they're going to store that solar energy, and it doesn't matter down the road whether it's not sunny because it's going to be a lot of stored energy just sitting out there ready to be used. And you can yeah. utilities to buy the surplus electricity being put off by, you know, I, my sister put uh, one of those um, solar panel roofs on, you know, and um, she said not only do they get a lot of energy from it, but also their house is cooler because these things are like six inches above your uh, roof and they're absorbing all that light and heat. And so um, she said just the temperature of the, the attic dropped like 20 degrees. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and tax incentives for people to do things like that are the perfect way to encourage that kind of investment locally. And for the wind farms to maybe be publicly owned as a utility uh, instead of corporate owned uh, might be a way to look at it too. Yeah, like the original Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, the government built the grid, especially out in the country. Uh, companies would electrify towns and cities because you have enough people packed in together to make it worth their while, but they weren't going to string lights for five miles between farms, no. Right. Um, so have we, I've tried to cover everything, have we left off any issues that are, oh, Native Americans, um, what is your position about the federal government, um, you know, treatment of Native Americans and what could be done to improve uh, that? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, I think that they need to respect their treaties. (laughs) That would be a good start, right? (laughs) Yes. And that the Indian Child Welfare Act needs to be protected. Because up until the 70s, Native American children were being taken away from their families to be raised in white homes. Or orphanages where a lot of them died. Yes. And the mass graves that are still being discovered, there's no way anybody's ever going to be able to repay the debt they owe these communities other than through accepting that they did wrong and saying, okay, we know this was wrong. Let's maybe mention it in our history books 
so that right. nobody makes this mistake again. So that's what I want to take out. That's that critical race theory stuff that freaks out the right wing so badly. Cause the last thing they want is the truth of American history being taught. Well, the, 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 last, the last thing they want behind that is to be critical of themselves and critical of this culture because it has perpetrated injustices. I mean, I keep harping on this, too, online. We need to be teaching the history of the labor movement. The United States has, and this goes right to Bruce and, and me both because our families were from the working class. And the United States has the most violent labor history of any industrialized country in the world. It is the most violent. People being killed, people being tortured by the police, people being, uh, you know, beaten up by the police, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and some and, of those massacres We don't want to wrestle with, that, with, the, with the labor history in this country. Some of those massacres occurred right here in Louisiana, you know, labor. Oh, yeah. yeah. Labor, um, you know, it was also racially motivated. but um, So, yeah, it was both. You know, yeah, it was race and class, absolutely. Was it Opelousas that had one of those, Stephen? We talked about it recently. And there was one in Opelousas, and there was one down somewhere in southwest Louisiana too. I think in Timber Country, down maybe above Lake Charles. But yeah, there was a bad, there was a you know some some labor violence down there too. Again, people trying to organize unions. So yeah, yeah this, this country has a nasty, nasty history of that kind of thing towards working men and working women. Really yeah, nice. and voting men and women, yes, think, you know, so yeah, voting rights need to be protected because some yeah. people risk being lynched to go make their voice heard, and we need that respected and protected. Everyone I mean, needs to keep their voice, even, even incarcerated people, in my opinion, need to keep their voice in, in the voting of elections, and who's going to represent them? Yeah. And we need to reassert the um, the Voting Rights Act, um, protect the election system from these, uh, you know, Republicans, frankly, that want to overturn free elections that don't go their way. Well, we lost, but we're going to, we, hey, look, we get to count the votes. So uh, there's no way we're going to lose because we count the votes, you know? Yeah. What is your opinion about increasing... Uh, the size of the country to include uh, Washington, D.C., and if they wanted Puerto Rico as states? Um, I would be perfectly fine with that. Um, I think that Washington, D.C. does sur uh, suffer unjustly with no representation for their taxation, and they have some, of the, some crazy tax percentages there. I mean, even worse than Louisiana. So... <laughs> um, and Puerto Rico being a state might actually help with their disaster response and the, yeah, the, politicians. the accountability of their leaders to spend their money wisely and in a timely fashion. Yeah. You could get the FBI after them a little more efficiently if they're dishonest. Um, so how about enlarging the Supreme Court to rebalance it after we got and three wing nuts appointed by Trump. Would you yeah. I would support in uh, adding justices to the Supreme Court simply because we can see right now that politics matter. Even if you're a judge and you're supposed to be nonpartisan and unbiased, that is not what we see in human beings. 
they are going to decide things based on their politics or their religion. And we need fairly represent all Americans. Yeah, and the the conservatives on the Supreme Court at this point kind of want a theocracy. But the problem is, who gets to be CEO in a state like Louisiana? You would have the Baptists in the North fighting against the Catholics in the South. And the genius of the First Amendment wasn't just freedom for you to have your own religion, free the country from these religious wars that had been going on already for centuries in Europe at the time. Yeah, and there is no basis other than religion for Roe v. Wade. Right. I cannot see any other explanation, and that is definitely against our Constitution. And, you know, Stephen and I grew up Baptist, so whenever my Baptist friends start in on their uh, forced birth uh, screeds, I'll say, well, if God had wanted to outlaw abortion, he just banned abortion in the Bible. He wouldn't wait to tell you. <laughs> like, yeah. Any verse. They don't have a verse. It's just what they want to believe, right? Yeah. And so, like, you know, there are quotes that I've heard of, you know, I haven't read the entire Bible, but um, I was brought up Baptist and Pentecostal out in, you know, I went to church and camper trailers out in Swamp and Montague, so. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> And it says life starts at your first breath somewhere. Yeah. That's, That's the Because uh, Bruce did more biblical studies. We're all seminary alums. He did biblical studies. I did church history. But isn't that the Hebrew idea of Bruce? That's Genesis 2, where God breathed life into Adam. And so traditional Jewish theology, and for a long time traditional Catholic theology, held that um, life begins when you are outside of your mother and take the breath of life for the first time. That was because here's a little <laughs> Hebrew. <laughs> the word ruach means spirit, but it also means breath. It also means wind. Um, and so it, it, you have to wait for the ruach to get into you uh, before you become a living ruach. You know, it, 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 uh, it's like the, the Greek word pneuma, right? It's exactly like that in spiritus in Latin, and all of them have that same range of meanings that makes it not make much sense to think you were, uh, you know, a individual human being uh, fully functioning uh, before you even took a breath. You have to take that breath. So uh, that's the classic theological response, uh, not life begins with uh, the sperm and the egg and everything. You know, that was the latest. <laughs> Every <laughs> sperm is sacred, to quote, to quote the gospel of Monty Python, you know. Right. <laughs> so are there any issues we have neglected? There's one very pressing I wanted to ask you. What is your stance on the U.S. and our military budget and just U.S. involvement in various foreign wars? And this is real critical when we think about what's going on in Ukraine right now uh, and how we're kind of teetering, you know, if, if, if Putin decides to, and this is a fear of a lot of, you know, more pacifist type people that I follow, but a real fear of a lot of uh, nuclear experts that like Dan Wellsberg and others, that we could be staring down the barrel of a nuclear shotgun. So what do you think about 
U.S. involvement in these wars overseas and just all, you know, American adventurism, et cetera? Well, I don't agree with all of the wars that we have butted our noses in. (laughs) Um, Vietnam is a good example of that. Um, I think that pride and ego got us into that, thinking, oh, yeah, well, you know, the French failed, but we can do it. And eventually proving we could not was useless. Um, But right now in Ukraine, I do support the funding that we're sending. I would rather send money than people. Um, I don't know what budgets look like, but I've heard complaints about them a lot, according to military spending. And I have seen percentages throughout election years whenever that becomes a big issue. I think that if we just spend more wisely, we could reduce some of that budget. I don't think that we should be butting into every altercation, but I do think that Russia poses a huge world threat versus just a threat against Ukraine. So I think it comes to weighing the pros and cons and what it could mean for the world in in any instance of warfare or funding or decisions like that to a lie. Our military is a back doorway of programs like here in uh, so that money is quote for military but now supports the economy and in ways that we might want to do with other programs, but we can't get those programs off the ground. Well, to to bring this back home, and this goes along to what we've been saying, you know, in earlier parts of the conversation, and I'm a big apostle of and acolyte of uh, Ralph Nader. He was a big hero of mine when I was in high school and college. And he, he does a radio show every week, in fact, kind of like ours except it's more about public policy and that kind of thing, consumer rights and so forth. But NATO points out there is a law on the books that the Pentagon must be audited every year. And they are never audited, or very rarely. In fact, one time when they were audited here about 10 or 15 years ago, the budget or their their expenditures and so forth were so snarled up that it was virtually uh, you know, un- untenable to try to complete the audit. So that wow. basically breaking the law. They're not being audited. The Pentagon's not being audited. Would, would I mean? Would you be on board with a with some kind of a bill that would force the issue, or at least would you know kind of build a fire under them to be audited every year? Absolutely. If, of our I money think that spending, being you know? transparent brings more faith. So, if you can trust them better and more with what they're doing, or you know, the other side of that is that you find a lot of waste and corruption and you can fix it I think transparency is the way to go with all of our money Um, it's all of our labor that is giving this money all of our labor contributes to the tax base that they have to spend on whatever programs they decide I think citizens need to know more about what they're doing with that money and why that could be a place for bipartisan bipartisan work I mean, you would think even that, that people like Higgins and his uh, so-called friends in the in the GOP would get on board with something like that, but they don't. Yeah. 
and yet they claim to be for fiscal responsibility. This is gross irresponsibility, but it's also dereliction of their duty when, again, they ought to be screaming, you know, from the lecterns there in, in the Congress that we need to audit the Pentagon. And they need to be saying this every quarter and every every year that we need to be auditing the Pentagon, and we don't. Yeah. And it's really, well, it, it, as Mayor points out, that's criminal. That is criminal because that is taking money out of the budget that could be better used for the very things we're talking about, particularly right. education and health and infrastructure and things like that. Right. We don't need such a huge <laughs> military presence, and we don't need such a huge government entity either. Um, I think our I was reading into how big the government is, and we increased its size around World War II and then never decreased it again. It's just remained at this huge wartime um, size. So looking at where we can also reduce the, the size of our government, make it run better. I mean, I have been working on this FEC file stuff. It is the most antique programming <laughs> I have ever had to work with. Um, our government should be more efficient. And if we were, it wouldn't take so many hours for us to interact with software to get jobs done for them, to have applications for funding projects go through. If they were more efficient, it would cost less to run our programs and to run our government. You know, Joe Biden learned a very important lesson from the uh, initial failure of the uh, website for um, uh, Obamacare in, um, a couple of weeks ago when they rolled out the uh, loan forgiveness page. It, I, I filled it out, uh, and uh, it, it actually worked, and it took about 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, it, um, so yeah, they, whatever they did, like, okay, let's get a nice, good, you know, it, it, uh, and it, by mention, you can apply off of your, uh, you know, your traditional computer, but it'll also work on a smartphone. And so, you know, they very, just making government more efficient and work the way we expect it to. That's a big thing. Yeah. It would have been a big thing had they not done it. It's not a big thing that they did. Nobody's, you know, it's like you don't get points, but you can sure lose points. Yeah, yeah. So they are definitely losing points on how this has to be on one single computer, like that one single computer me and a volunteer are working on to complete right. our reporting. You have to enter each individual <laughs> And then their contribution, and then how it was paid, and you know, like it could be so much more effective if we could just upload that in a CSV file, you know. Mm -hmm. But this is an expense. This is a contribution. Voila. Yeah. So it's just we're not doing the best in providing ourselves with the tools that would make our government more efficient. Right. And that's a one-time investment, you know, yeah. every 10 years or so. Okay, everything's been updated. Let's update this this one time, make sure everything can run efficiently. 
Yeah, there are legacy programs out there that haven't really been updated since the 60s and 70s when they were first created, you know, and uh, only the government has stuff like that. <laughs> that's, that's something Nader talks about a lot. He's forever talking about almost every episode, really. This is like a weekly thing. He'll bring up the topics of waste, fraud, abuse, and inefficiency. Yes. That's something that, you know, that maybe you could even sign on to, you know, were you to get elected. I mean, that's that is a big thing. That's governing, you know, not so much with big government or small government, government but smart government, right? Right. Smart government that really does what and does the people's business. That's that's a real problem today because so much of Washington with the Republicans and Democrats is beholden to corporate interests. It's not beholden to to you and me to we the people. Right. Is the people for whom you know the the, the the citizens, you know, the people to whom it should be beholden, it's it's beholden instead of corporations and billionaires. Yeah, which is why we need term limits. <laughs> I think term limits is a good good way to stop their influence from being so long-term. And if they couldn't put endless dollars into campaigns, that would also help. You know, we need to repass campaign, you know, spending limitations because right now it just – uh, if I can't beat you by spending a million dollars, well, let's spend $10 million and see if mm-hmm. that, you know, they can overturn Citizens United – yeah. Yeah. So a really important thing I forgot to just now, uh, the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, which makes women fully uh, equal citizens, has passed, but it has not been ratified. So what do you want to do about getting that that final uh, little bit of distance to get it in the actual Constitution as an amendment? Well... Like I had previously said, just using my bigger voice is how things like that are going to be promoted. And by rallying people to contact their congressmen, I think if people have a champion, in a sense, if they have somebody rallying them for things that are good for them and not just some political agenda, that'll help us in the end, to get more people involved. I mean, I've talked to people who are so disgusted that they haven't voted in years during this campaign. And it's a shame that they don't get involved because their voices do matter. Even with something on a federal constitutional level, their voices matter. And we need to have a public outcry to make sure that those things are passed. Right support the good stuff. And, you know, I think if Democrats get back to a more progressive agenda, we kind of gave up economic progress a generation ago and have been pursuing these small little uh, identity things to get people to vote for us. Like, um, you know, George Floyd gets killed, Nancy Pelosi and a bunch of uh, her friends uh, go out into the rotunda of the Capitol and Put on the canty oh, cloth. <laughs> yeah, canty. A picture made of them kneeling in prayer. Uh, and then when the officers are finally sent to jail, um, Pelosi stands up and says, "Well, thank goodness the system. We don't need to make any changes. So no laws came about as a result of that. And that's the only thing Congress produces. Uh, and so it's, it's all performative, like you talk about. It's, it's performative stuff. 
Yeah, it's performative. And the stuff we've been talking about is substantial. If, you, if we did raise people's uh, salary, if we do make it easier to join a union, if we uh, lower the cost of education and forgive student debt, that helps people where they live. Um, and it helps the society as a whole to have an yeah. educated citizenry. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. not only that, but we also need to stop selling college as the only option because we are coming yeah. out of blue-collar professionals. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there aren't enough roofers to keep up with the need here in Louisiana. There, well, we, there we need a fresh not roof enough every... fishermen to collect oh, our harvest. Yeah, we need a fresh roof every campaign, I mean, every uh, hurricane season, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and I mean, we getting also a plumber to... these days, you yeah, have to exactly. wait. Or, or, or so, wiring your house, you know, you need an electrician, but you don't have to have a baccalaureate degree to do that. That's correct. And we need to invest more in that because the way it's working right now, it's a farce in our high schools where they have some of these career pathways. Um, my husband is a welding instructor at the career huh? center now because I, was, I got tired of his traveling. I told him I wanted him to stay home. I helped him get his teaching certificate. He is teaching in his fourth year now in a high school welding program. (laughs) And he's been super successful with his students. He's had several go into the workforce already. And, you know, he, but he took a huge pay cut to do that. Right, right. He did it for me. He did it for us to be with our two kids that we still have living at home right now. He did it for us. And, you know, it's, it's shown us a whole new world where welding class is not the same in his room as it is in the high school across town where the ag teacher is just certifying <laughs> them in NCCER level one and two without them ever having wet a bead or used a grinder properly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you've got to learn to use the tools. I and have real respect. certifying <laughs> these programs. I have <laughs> real respect for people with what I call real jobs, you know. Uh, uh, I figured out a scam where I stand in front of kids and talk, they pay me. <laughs> well, my, um, my, dad, my dad was a welder. I mean, it's dangerous work. Uh, during, yeah. during World War II, Daddy was. Daddy never went into combat. He was in the military. He was in the Air Force, actually, or what was then called the Army Air Corps. But he never went into combat because he had what was then called a necessary skill. And so he spent the World Welding Aircraft part to the base down in, in Florida. And he was really he he he, bar- he had a real brush with with a disability uh, that occurred much earlier than his later disability, losing both legs. But he got caught in front of welders' arc. And got a case of what they call uh, arc eye, or mm-hmm. flash, flash blindness, and and he was sent home immediately, and were actually was sent to the to one of the base doctors, and then they they diagnosed what his problem was, and the doctor told my mother that you put I think it was potato peelings or or steak or something I think it's potato peelings anyhow on the eye, and that will hopefully they weren't sure it would work, but they knew it had worked in the past. Uh, with some some patients, and they said put this on his eyes in order to draw out that heat, and and because he was blinded, and by the next day, and really by about a couple of weeks later, his vision was back normal. But I mean, he could have yeah. been blinded, and he did end up losing some hearing, you know, being exposed to that heavy machinery there in the in the shop there at the base. 
But right. I mean, it's, it's a dangerous, as you know from your husband's experience, and I know from my dad, it was a, it was and is a very dangerous job because you're dealing with high temperature, you're dealing with sounds that are, you know, really deafening, et cetera. So you can well, really you're get extreme, You're in an extreme environment. Like, you're in a pole. <laughs> you know, uh, some of them are underwater welders, you know, that, oh, my goodness, what would that even? Oh, he was, he was approached at, towards the end of his time in Florida before he was shipped out to Hawaii. Uh, he, Daddy was approached to be a Navy, or not a Navy, but to be an Air Force diver. They had huh. people testing bomb sites and new explosives down there in Florida, down in the Gulf, you know, down east of Louisiana. And so he was approached, and Daddy was a really strong swimmer, and they said, would you like to be an Air Force diver for us? And, you know, I think actually his, because by this time he was a sergeant, and he was asked by, you know, somebody higher up than he was, like a lieutenant or captain, we'd like you to be a diver. And Daddy said no, he said, and, and, and re-up. He said, absolutely not. He said, I'm moving back to Louisiana as soon as I'm, you know, discharged, which is what he did. But, yeah, he was going to become, or so they wanted him to become an Air Force diver. Hmm. So we kind of touched on it earlier, but I haven't addressed it directly. The um, climate change, global warming, Louisiana losing 80% of the land mass that's being lost in the United States is being lost in Louisiana. It's just melting into the Gulf. And you're on the front line. You know, you might be living on a pontoon boat in the future if we don't do something. So what is your state, uh, you know, stance toward climate change, the Green New Deal, uh, new ways of having green energy, et cetera? Well, um, I am definitely going to be in touch regularly with Taproot Earth and Colette Pichon Battle to make sure that I know what's going on with our coasts and what opportunities there are. Um, I believe that coastal preservation and reinforcement is our first line of defense against these storms that come in and eat away our land. We really need to be, you know, doing a lot more with our nutrients and, and, you know, encouraging their elimination because it's really without those roots that they're eating, it's just mud that will get washed away. Yeah, we need uh, we need a neutral. Let's do with neutral what we did with crawfish. I mean, who sits down and says, "I want to eat a crawfish," but we do because mm-hmm. we grew up being taught that. We nutria, I understand, are as delicious as alligator or some of the other stuff we eat. So, right, uh, yeah, eating them, they would just go out there and catch them because they're free and uh, help out with the control of the population. Yeah, and. I believe that we need to do something and, you know, that a challenge, a Nutra challenge, like to to go and try it statewide, get people to try it, cook different ways would be awesome. Introduce them to that, turn it into a harvested, you know, thing that we sell in shops. That would be awesome. And I think we need to do the same thing with the Asian carp because, they are going becoming a bigger and bigger problem in our waterways these days as well. So we need a a, a, a new process and a carp fest, you know, just yeah, need to add to their uh, you know. Our endless festivals can continue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how you popularize something, right? Yes, yes. 
Um, and, you know, we do have a couple of really innovative companies in Louisiana, like the Nutridog. Um, oh, they, yeah. They use tons of Nutri-Meat to make dog treats and dog food. So. Oh, I was thinking we were making uh, hot dogs out of Nutri. I think that would be good, too. But uh, start oh, with yeah. the dog. It's already made out of everything, right? <laughs> I mean, they're specialty. Uh, gourmet, uh, what you call it, uh, that dog, I think they call it in New Orleans, that, um, you know, they make some of it are regular hot dogs, but they have alligator hot dogs and other stuff like right. that, you know, uh, more exotic. So yeah, I add Nutria hot dogs to the list. And Nutria, I mean, the hot dog looks or like Or maybe we dog. rename it because the, I think it's the word rat that puts people off. Well, we won't use the word rat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But for, for folks who aren't familiar with why they're a problem, they were a species brought into Louisiana, I think, to graze for, for pelts. But then they got loose and they eat all of the plants that, um, uh, you know, they're hungry for and don't leave the roots and the uh, plants die and the, uh, the, the um, trembling prairie turns to mud and melts into the gulf. So it's part of the... Uh, you know, vicious cycle. Here's a, here's a company in Baton Rouge, my old hometown. It's called Marsh Dog. <laughs> oh, that's the one that I'm in. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We need yeah, to fill in a lot of these canals that were dug by uh, the oil industry that are, you know, critical to, uh, you know, holding the land in. If, if, if you have this you know, like ditch there. Uh, you know, it just gives it another way to melt into the Gulf. So, uh, and we need to charge the industry to pay, make them pay for this stuff. Here you go. It says here it tastes like a cross between turkey and pork. However, it's, I'm reading it up the, the little thing from AmericasRestaurant.com on the Google, and just reading the thumbnail, and it says, however, it's healthier than turkey and almost as exotic as alligator meat. It's also called poor person's meat, as people eat it when there isn't any food to consume. So there you go. Yeah, we need to yeah. have it places where we have a lot of tourists because they'll come in and eat it. <laughs> they bought it, and then they'll go back home and remember. Hey, right. Hey. It's like you go to Asia and you want to try the scorpion on the stick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think so that's nutria first. <laughs> we need to turn it into that. <laughs> right. Um, so, but there is a way, and we need to just – expose people to that opportunity and that would be a really cool thing to do i was recently talking with an economic development point person in a parish that's in the district about how we need regional efforts um some of our smaller municipalities and parishes don't have people that are really familiar with identifying federal funding options and utilizing them or you know, successfully even applying for it. So if we had like a little committee that would find that money and make a template for the grant or do it right. with a tri-parish approach so that yeah. it touches more lives, that would be really yeah. awesome. So yeah. if we did this as a regional celebration and it's an ecological problem, we could probably find money to fund this kind of thing to help solve one of our problems creatively. Yeah, everything from I-10 down is in the same boat, you know, and they need to be working together. Um, 
uh, I can see why the right wing up here where we are in Ruston feel relatively safe. At, how high are we, Stephen? 200 feet? Uh, 331 feet, if Wikipedia is correct. One, one account says we're 319, I think on Rand McNally, and Wikipedia says 331. So we're, we're one of only, I think, five or six cities in the whole state that's 300 feet or higher in elevation. So, yeah, our guys don't see the problem, but there's no reason people in your area shouldn't be able to comprehend that you're in real trouble. Like, yeah. your lifestyle's way. If, we don't need Eels on Sorrel to be the story of all of South Louisiana. Yeah, and, and we're not alone. I mean, there are climate, <clears throat> as I've read it here pretty recently on online, and it, Mother Jones or someplace anyhow covered this, uh, other uh, climate refugees in the United States are up in Alaska. There are some up there, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, and so, we need to address that. Absolutely. I'm with the, um, uh, have we left off any issues that are important to you that we didn't think to ask about? Gosh, you know, as soon as we hang up, I'll probably think <laughs> of one, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything that we haven't spoken about, and really we've gotten, oh, wait, wait, maybe so. With okay. my hurricane, um approach like to disaster recovery i did want to look at ways to invest in more at-risk and low-income communities in advance as a part of our storm mitigation plan because if they live in a food desert that's where most of our money is going to get food and resources to people Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. a storm hits Mm -hmm. because and they're going to suffer the most negative effects if they don't have a pharmacy that can reopen or, you know, a hospital nearby. So if we can make neighborhoods in low-income areas more walkable for people who live there, they won't need so much support after the storm. Right. If we could have sandbag distribution in their area versus having them have to transport sandbags from outside of their community, I mean – some of them don't have vehicles to go out and pick up sandbags. So the, having the distribution in their communities versus outside of their communities at big open community spaces that they can't get to would be more effective. Right. There are ways that we can protect those people that are most at risk, and I think that we need to look into it. Well, good. Well, it sounds like you have a good platform. How's the response been? Well, overall, very positive. Um, I've even talked to some people on the phone while I've been doing my hundreds of calls a day that I was doing initially. Right now it's less than that because we just got an ad, and I'm trying to get it out all over media. So yesterday and today we're kind of focused on running ads. But, um, (laughs) you know, I can connect to people. If they give me a chance to talk to them about what's important to them, then they realize I'm a real person. And we're able to come to some kind of consensus most times. And I was out at the rice and gravy cook-off, which preceded the rice festival by a few weeks, and I came across a tent full of guys, said, hi, I'm T. I'm running for Congress against Clay Higgins. One of them said, oh, Clay Higgins is my boy. Oh, my God. I said, well you'll get to spend more time with him when he's home. <laughs> so, 
Um, and they all he's laughed. Good he's good for yeah. parties. They all laughed, and they listened to me after that. So I was at least able to introduce myself, say what I was about and what I believe in, and they can do what they want with it with their vote. But, you know, I like to think that those people who give me the chance to speak with them will see that I'm coming at this with a genuine heart. I want to work for our families. I know what living in South Louisiana is like. I've been here my whole life. And this is the community I care about, not only because, you know, I live here, but because my friends are here. My history is here. My grandbabies live in Calcasieu Parish. You know, like, I have roots that I want to protect. Well, it's simply too important to let a clown do it, you know, because that's all Higgins yeah. will ever be. Um, well, he's a he's a carpet bagger of sorts, right? He's not even from that part of South Louisiana. He's from the New Orleans area, and then yeah, he goes there. You know, in fact, he was in our district for a while when he first got elected. He was literally here in the in, up here in the Hill Country District in the Fifth District, if you can believe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really, so was, I've was, lived you know, in District 3 stuff. for half my life now. Well, you know, you need somebody, I think, that really understands the people and their needs and their communities and not somebody like him that's essentially an import uh, who is a tool for the powerful and the wealthy. That's that's basically what he and so many politicians are. They're tools for the powerful and the wealthy who will do anything the powerful and the wealthy tell them to do. Yes. And that's not what I'm going in this to do either. I'm not going to try to be bought and become rich. I don't want my babies to move away from me. Right. So I want economic opportunity in this state that is good enough that I'm not alone when I'm old, that my six kids are within a couple hours from me, you know? That's a great I want to see my grandkids. That's the way, great way to start a stump speech. All our kids are having to leave to get jobs. It's time to bring them back. Yeah. The only reason they leave is because um, they need the money. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We will post it uh, Friday uh, evening, is uh, usually when it drops. So, get it out in time for the election uh, so people can know where you stand with those issues. Well, I appreciate you guys giving me a platform to speak and let people get to know me a little better. Thank you for yeah, reaching out. Well, thank you for stopping by. <laughs> you take care. You Been too. Far. You too. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Have a good day. You yeah, take care. Bye. We want to thank Tia for coming on the podcast and wish her all the best in her uh, candidacy. I got to say, um, her stance on the issues kind of matched up with what we usually go for. Uh, you know, the kinds of things that um, we um, we try to push in our uh, political activities on other venues. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's things that will build a common good. That's the whole. Yeah, thing. that's right. Uh, make better education, better health care, better roads, you know, just all the stuff that could stand to be better in a state like Louisiana if we had a representative that did something to represent the 
the uh, the state. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We want to thank Tia for coming by uh, yesterday, actually, and, and speaking with us. Um, we will have another one of these interviews very soon, probably within the next few days. And we do urge every one of you to get out and vote. Uh, early voting started this week, or started on the, was it the 24th or 25th? It was Tuesday. It runs from Tuesday, I think, through the next Tuesday. Yeah, so two days ago, the early voting started. So do, do go out and cast your ballot. Uh, do your civic duty. You know, you are called upon to go and, and uh, you know, perform your, this is part of your duty, at least to go cast your ballot. So do uh, do go out there and, and, and support your candidates and, and look very carefully at those amendments that are on the, the ballot uh, this time. There's, a, I think, a slew of my eight, if I recall correctly. But also, a, yeah, there are a lot of local initiatives as well. I know Dubot uh, here in North Louisiana, I think, was maybe voting for mayor or for a town ordinance or something, but there was something on the ballot here in Lincoln Parish strictly for the town of Dubot. So uh, do pay attention to those things and go out there and do your duty. So, again, thanks to Tia for dropping by and speaking with us. We also want to thank all of you for listening in. We hope that you'll join us for next edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.